0: Uh, Does anybody else need notes? Uh, Anybody doesn't have notes? A few of you. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and be turning to, uh, open it to Exodus. I intend to read every single verse. So I hope you all had dinner. Four. Anybody else? Back here. Any one or two? There you go. Anybody else? All right. So I did pretty good last week. I got through all the pages. So I set a pretty high standard for myself. So we'll get we'll get right in uh, Exodus, second book of the Bible. Probably happened somewhere between fourteen forty six BC and twelve sixty. Now it's based on some constructions of some dates that emerge later in the Old Testament, but. That's the most likely time frame that the actual exodus where Israel left Egypt would have occurred. And you see the author most likely Moses or the book itself does not claim who wrote it. So inside the book itself there's no explicit claim. But the main idea or the theme of exodus is the fulfillment of God's promises to the patriarchs that he would make their descendants a great nation. So if you remember last week, or if you've read Genesis, Genesis makes a promise to Abraham, um, I'm sorry, God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and he says, I will make you into a great nation. Now, Abraham was uh, 75 at the time, no children. Isaac wouldn't come for another 25 years. And so Exodus is about the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Abraham. So Abraham had to wait 25 years for that initial fulfillment from when God said you'll have a baby until when Isaac shows up. Now he tried to help God along the way in between with Ishmael but the promised son Isaac didn't show up for a while and then Isaac to Jacob and on down the line. So that word patriarchs, so that title patriarchs talks about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so Exodus flows into the fulfillment of that particular promise. It's carried out against the opposition of what was at that time the greatest superpower in the world, that Egypt was an immense civilization, perhaps one of the greatest civilizations in the history of mankind, lasted well over 2,000 years, which you compare to our nation, which is less than 500 years old as, a, as, long, as, as long as we've been here, and uh, less than 250 years old as a nation, somewhere around there. I haven't done my math exactly, but Egypt was a massive human civilization, a powerful human civilization, and that's where the Israelites are, and so the story of Exodus occurs with that as the backdrop, this, this superpower of a civilization. It also occurs despite the unbelief and disobedience of the people of Israel themselves, That's one of the major themes that emerges, that the people of God disobey God over and over and over again, and yet God sustains his promise. God is faithful to his promise because he's God. So the first half of the book records the events that fulfill the promises made to Abraham, that they would sojourn in a land not their own, they would be afflicted for 400 years, And then they would come out with numerous possessions. If you read Genesis, then you you remember from chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, that God promised Abram. He said, your people are gonna sojourn in a land not their own, and then they're gonna come out wealthy. And we see that happen in Exodus. The second half of the book deals with the events surrounding the covenant promises that God reveals, that God confirms, that the people Break, they break God's covenant promises right from the get go, and then God renews it right from the get go. Exodus also begins to reveal the covenant instructions, which we call the law. The Ten Commandments are kind of the introduction to the law. Does anybody know how many individual laws there are in the Old Testament? A bunch. That's exactly right. Close, 613. You were right there. He said 12 and 14. 613 individual laws. The Ten Commandments are kind of the introduction of the overview or an an encapsulation of those laws. Um, So the basic outline of the story, chapter one, the history of several centuries of history from Joseph to Moses. When Genesis closes, Joseph is second in command over Egypt. The people have shown up there because of the famine. They're around 70 or so in number. And that's where Genesis closes. And so from the time Genesis closes until Exodus 1 opens, there's been about 400 years of time. And so you can imagine what happens over 400 years of time. The people have expanded. They've grown. And most likely, I mean, they're well up over a million people at this point, the people of Israel. And so several centuries of time are covered right there in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the story of Moses' life before the Exodus that covers a span of about 80 years which happens really fast but that's, that's about how much uh, how many years of his life that chapter 2 in Exodus covers and then chapters 3 through 40 slow way down about one year's time and it's the story of uh, the Exodus and then their initial movement into the wilderness so it covers a, a large span of time about 481 years but the bulk of the book covers that one year span so Before we get going and I give kind of a a theological overview of some of the themes that Exodus deals with, I want to give this definition of sovereignty because that's a huge theme in Exodus, sovereignty. And the definition is God's absolute rule and authority over all things or his exercise of power and authority over his creation. And that's something that Moses brings to the forefront. That's something that this story brings to the forefront. That if God is not in total control of everything, that means down to people. If God isn't in control, then the story doesn't make any sense and the story wouldn't have happened the way that it happened. And Moses brings that out as the story is told. So, we're going to look at three different things that emerge from the story of Exodus. And the first one is that God works sovereignly. That that's how he works. He works not by dealing with circumstances as they come. He's not reactionary as far as, you know, something happens and then he responds to it. That's not the picture that we get from the Bible or from Exodus, but that God is working proactively. So, The first thing we see, the first place we see God working in this way is in Moses' life, and specifically in how he raises up Moses. So, in chapters 1 and 2, as I said, there's a large span of time covered, but then chapter 2 is about the birth and the early life, or the life pre Exodus of of Moses. Um, Because the Israelites. Uh, reproduced so quickly because their number expanded so much. Pharaoh, uh, the current Pharaoh at the time of Moses' life, became worried that they might lead an uprising and overthrow them, and so uh, that he enslaves them. Hard, forced labor, and uh, even so much so that he gives an edict to kill all the firstborn sons of the Jews, which is the time in which Moses is born. If you've seen any of the story of the movies, either Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments or uh, the Prince of Egypt is an animated film. It's, I don't know how old it is now. But that happens because of Pharaoh's fear. Now, there's a lot has changed because when Genesis closes, Pharaoh has a good opinion of the Jews, so much so that a Jew is installed as number two in command. But in 400 years' time, that relationship has changed so much so that Pharaoh is now oppressing through slavery these people. And so it's against this backdrop, this background, that God is raising up Moses. The people are oppressed. The people are enslaved. Pharaoh is, is, is committed to not letting them grow and gain power. And this is when God begins to act and carry out his plan. And so Exodus gives us a glimpse into the reality that God is sovereignly working behind the scenes even when we can't see him. Now, that line right there should have been a deep comfort to you. That's not just a truth in Exodus, that's a truth about God's character. That when you can't see God, when you can't sense God, you can know that God is at work. Now I have a a favorite quote of mine, it's not a a Bible quote, but it's a quote related to the Bible. And the quote is, God is doing 10,000 things a day in your life, and you might be aware of three. And that's the story of Exodus that the people were enslaved, that the people were fearful, the people wanted to be rescued, they wanted God to intervene, and yet they couldn't see. If, you're, if you've been doing the Sunday school uh, book, I can't remember the name of it, in Job i from looking at suffering, it quotes the, the passage from Job 23, where Job says, I can't see God, I've looked for him in front of me, I've looked for him on my side, I've looked for him behind me, I can't see him, but I know he's there. I know he's working. And that's one of the truths that emerged from Exodus. That even though things seem to be going south, it's not that the people just can't see God, it's actually things are going badly, and yet God is at work. So with with details that remind us of Noah, Moses is saved. Moses is put into an ark of sorts that's coated with pitch and tar like the ark itself would have been. Moses is placed into water inside of this ark-like basket and he is sovereignly guided down the Nile River to exactly where Pharaoh's daughter is out for a bathe. Now, some people may say that's coincidence and uh, I just believe coincidence is a fancy word for God's sovereignty. And I think that's, that's the approach the Bible takes, that God does not work accidentally. God makes no mistakes. And so Moses is put in this basket, he finds his way by God's hand to Pharaoh's daughter, who knows he's a Jew, he knows, she knows he's a Hebrew child, and yet takes pity on him, has mercy on him, sends him back to his, his biological mother to nurse him and to raise him up for a few months, and then he comes to live with her, and he's raised in the palace. So chapter 2 doesn't give us a lot of insight into the life of Moses in Egypt. There's some creative liberties taken in the movie Prince of Egypt, if you've ever seen that movie, anybody ever seen that movie? Uh, all the stuff with Ramesses and growing up together, that's all... Fictional. We don't know if that happened or not. The Bible doesn't talk about that at all. It could have happened, but the, the, the type of nuclear family relationship that we see portrayed in Prince of Egypt is more related to what we see now, and it would have been awkward in this time period, based on other research that we've done. But we don't know anything about his, his adolescent years, his adult years. What we do know, and what chapter 2 does tell us, is that Moses becomes a murderer, that's really kind of the highlight of chapter 2. That Moses is saved by God's sovereign hand through a very unlikely scenario. The, the Nile River's big, the Nile River has some, some nasty animals in it, it's fierce. And yet, this baby winds up at Pharaoh's daughter's feet. And then he's raised, and it tells us in chapter 2 that, uh, in verse 11, one day when he'd grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. That's our introduction to Moses the grown-up. That somewhere along the way he realizes he's a Jew. He has some compassion somewhat on this, on this Jew being beaten and so he takes matters in his own hands. He murders this Egyptian and tries to hide the body and then it's found out and it says in verse 15 when Pharaoh heard of it he sought to kill Moses. He sought to kill him. And Moses flees out, out into the wilderness. But he flees under threat of his own death. He settles in the wilderness. He marries a lady named Miriam. And when chapter two closes, Moses is about 80 years old. He's lived out most of his life as a shepherd in the wilderness. That's where we find him at the end of chapter two. That's where we find him when the story of Exodus gets going. He's an old man, living in the harsh wilderness in the Middle East, as a shepherd. And we see God's sovereignty in raising him up. But a second way we see God's sovereignty is that God calls Moses. He calls him. As much as Exodus is about Moses, what we glean from the story itself is that it's a story about God. Moses is a major character, but he's not the main character. The main character of the story is God. God's the one acting, he's the one calling, he's the one moving, he's the one sending and cursing and saving and sustaining and providing. It's all about God and his work. And so Moses is not looking to sign up for God's service. That's not how we find Moses. He's not praying that God would raise him up to deliver the people out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, he probably has no desire whatsoever to go back to Egypt, He's a wanted man. So, going back to Egypt, leading a revolution, leading an exodus of a people, well in excess of a million individuals, was not on his to do list for the day. He's probably thinking more towards retirement. But yet, God calls him and God commissions him to go. So, even the amazing signs that Moses does, those are all conceived of, commissioned by, and carried out by God. God doesn't somehow infuse Moses with special power that Moses is then free to go and use on his own. Moses does nothing except what God allows him to do, what God performs through him. And so if you know that story, Moses is out in the wilderness and God comes to him in a bush that's burning yet not being consumed. That in and of itself is an act of sovereignty. How can a bush burn and yet not burn? because the one who made the bush and the one who made the fire can cause them to interact in any way that he wants them to interact. And so he sovereignly comes to Moses and commissions him and tells him to go. What well, we also see God's sovereignty demonstrated in his, God's using of Moses to deliver the people. He not only calls him from the wilderness, but he accomplishes his plans through Moses. He doesn't say, Moses, I want you to do this and then sit up in heaven and say, I'm really hoping Moses is gonna get this done. That's not the picture we see of God. What we see God doing is doing exactly what he says he's going to do and he accomplishes it through his chosen servant. So Mo- Moses returns to Egypt in chapter four. He announces the Lord's plans to Pharaoh. He performs the Lord's signs before the Hebrew people because he tells God, he said, these people aren't gonna listen to me not just the Egyptians the Jews and God says well we'll make sure they're going to listen so he performs signs in front of the Jews they respond positively chapter 5 he goes before Pharaoh announces God's intentions and God's demands and instead of what I'm sure he was hoping that would be the end of it Pharaoh makes it worse he says all right I'll just make your people's work harder So he responds to God's instruction by sinning further and makes things harder. In chapter 7 through 12, Moses gives us the overview of the plagues that God brings against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Chapter 12 is about the death plague. The end of chapter 12 highlights the actual exodus, the formal leaving of Egypt of the Jews. This is where it says that the the Egyptians allowed the Jews to take whatever they wanted to take. So it says, the Bible says they plundered the Egyptians. Jesus uses that language in Mark. If you remember in chapter three, he says no one can plunder a strong man's house unless he first binds him. And so here the the Jews are plundering. They're, they're, They're taking all the riches of the Egyptians and the Egyptians in God's sovereignty. The Egyptians are saying, take it. Can you imagine? One day they're saying, do your work harder, we're gonna add labor to you because we can't, we can't stand this nonsense this guy's saying about your God, and so we're gonna punish you for what he's saying, and the next day they're saying, leave and take our stuff. That doesn't happen on accident. Well, 13 and 14, they feature God's victory over the Egyptian armies. Chapter 15, Moses sings a victory song unto God where he gives God all the credit. Chapters 15 through 18 record their three month journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where God would give them the law. So, any questions on God working sovereignly in Moses? Yes, sir. Uh, I don't, did Moses know that God would part the Red Sea? I I don't think so. The Bible doesn't indicate that he does. I think God kept Moses in the dark on a lot of things that didn't happen until, because probably what would have happened is he would have said, you know, there's a different way we could go where there's not this big body of water. Just like if God showed us the map of our lives, we would probably, let's have a sit down and kind of renegotiate some of these paths. But no, I don't think he did. Um, Let's look at God working sovereignly in Pharaoh. Pharaoh's another major player in the first part of the book. They're almost kind of opposites because whereas Moses had nothing yet ends up gaining everything, Pharaoh is the the ruler of the known world at that point who has everything and yet loses it all because he tries to contend with God. And so just as much as God is working sovereignly in Moses' life, God's also working sovereignly in Pharaoh's life. So God places Pharaoh in his position. He tells him that in a number of places. In, in, in chapter 9, verse 16, Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, and he says, God says that he's raised you up for this time. That, that you didn't get to this position for any other reason except that God put you there. And that's a big deal. He goes. Uh, Paul reflects on this in Acts 17, where he says... From one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's a biblical definition of sovereignty. God determines our lives, God determines everything about His world, and that's right. And scripture is clear the Lord is the one who humbles and exalts, even when it comes to kings and presidents and people in power. God is sovereign over those things. Well, we see God sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart. You see on your on your notes, this part of the story often bothers some, but it's crucial to understanding why and how Israel escapes Egypt that God works sovereignly in putting Pharaoh in his position of power, but also in hardening Pharaoh's heart. God warns Moses ahead of time that he will do this. If you got your Bible open in Exodus chapter four, Exodus chapter four and verse 21, it says that the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Those are difficult texts to read and yet they're an essential part of the story because just as much as God was sovereignly working to deliver the people by raising up Moses, he was delivering his people by hardening Pharaoh's heart. These verses state that God purposefully hardened his heart. There are numerous mentions of Pharaoh's heart throughout chapters 7 through 11 of Exodus. Some state that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Some state that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, or it just records Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But the picture that is drawing out is Pharaoh's hardness of heart comes from God. It's akin to the death of King Saul. 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 10. If you ever read that story, and I encourage you to read it, 1 Chronicles 10 It says that Saul is in a battle and that he realizes he's he's defeated. And so it says he falls on his own sword. He takes out his sword and he takes the cowardly way out and he falls on his own sword. He says that in verse four. But then in verse 14, it says, and so the Lord God put Saul to death. And so you see that God sovereignly is working in both situations. But, right after the plague of hail and before the locust Pharaoh hardens his heart and it is described as sinfully guilty says this in chapter 9 34 through chapter 10 verse 1 if you want to flip there and look or I'll just read it chapter 9 34 it says but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased he sinned yet again and hardened his heart he and his servants so that The heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord God said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servant. And so, what we're seeing is this theological truth that God is sovereignly at work in everything and that God purposefully did this for the rescuing of his people. But alongside of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we see God defeating Pharaoh. See on your notes there that God's sovereign work in Pharaoh culmination comes together when he defeats the armies of Pharaoh. Moses records that God led the Egyptian army into the Red Sea. They've come out of Egypt, they've gotten to the, the edge of the sea. Pharaoh changes his mind, and so he goes after them with at that time what was the largest army in the world of, of, of infantrymen and chariots and horses here comes this massive army to take back israel and so god parts the sea by his sovereign power because again if god can can make a burning plant burning it not be consumed he can tell the water spread apart for a little bit and dry up so people can walk on you and so the the sea parts for the the people to pass through and this was no quick incident a million people don't move fast But then, while God is holding them back, if you've read the story, God's holding the the Egyptian army back with a pillar of smoke and fire. He finally lets it up, and the the army chases Israel into the sea where God closes the sea on him. And so you see there on your notes, God uses the same implement, the Red Sea. He uses the same thing to be both an act or or, a, a tool of salvation for his people and a tool of judgment for the Egyptians. It's the same thing. The Red Sea that has been parted. And for one group of people it's salvation and for the other group of people it's judgment. And God can do that. According to scripture and the book of Exodus in particular, we don't get a view of a passive God. What Exodus tells us is that God is proactive, that God is very active in the world, putting together his will and carrying out his will circumstances don't determine god's plan god's plan determines the circumstances and this is the story of the whole bible that this is why we see so many unlikely things happening throughout the bible from the promising of a child to a barren 100-year-old couple abraham and sarah to God himself putting on flesh and willingly dying on the cross. Those are unlikely things. And they would not happen outside of a sovereign God working out his will. It's a good quote. The great story of scripture from start to finish presents presents God's sovereign purposes amazingly worked out. So God works sovereignly in both Moses and Pharaoh's life and that is what we are supposed to witness. So that as his people, we will personally hear God's promises to us, believe those promises, obey him, knowing that he will accomplish everything he said he would do. Do you know why it's good news that God is sovereign? Because he promises to save all those who have faith and walk in faith. Because he promises that even when you pass through the waters, he will be with us. That he promises that even, though our outer, even though our outer selves are wasting away, he promises our inner selves are being renewed day in and day out. He promises us that on the next side of death is life eternal. You know why he can promise those things? Because he's sovereign. Because he is totally in control. Well, a second thing we see is that God works sovereignly to save a special people. That we see his sovereignty at work, but we also see that it's directed in a certain way, which is the salvation of Israel. That he's chosen Israel over and above all the other nations. Exodus challenges this commonly held belief that God treats everyone the same way. And that's just something that the Bible gets up in our business about. Now, this has no bearing on on, on if God is fair or not. It has no bearing on whether God is just or not. God is entirely fair. He is committed to upholding justice because God himself is justice. And you see there on your notes, no one can require mercy from God because it's his mercy. You can't walk up to somebody who owns something and demand it from them it's theirs they have a right to do with it as they please and wh- what we also know is that god is entirely just and fair everything he does is right and so we see this in a number of ways he distinguishes his people the jews from the egyptians he does this in the story he he says to uh, to pharaoh that he's gonna make a distinction when it comes to the plagues. He says, this stuff, some of this bad stuff is gonna happen on you guys. It's not gonna happen on my people. You can count on that. And so several of the plagues happen and they affect the Egyptian people, their livestock and, 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 and their lives, but the Israelites who are living in the very same city aren't affected. And God told him, I'm gonna make that distinction, wait and see. We see this again with the plague of the firstborn. God instructs the Jews, here is how to be saved. And he makes a distinction between the Jews and the Egyptians. And he distinguishes them by saving them from the death plague. Well, later we see that God will distinguish his people from all the peoples of the earth. Not just the Egyptians, but from all people. In chapters 1 through 18, he distinguishes them from the Egyptians. And in chapters 19 through 40... God distinguishes the people from the rest of the peoples of the earth. And he does this in a number of ways. He does this by giving them the law. He doesn't give the law to any other people group on the earth. He only gives the Ten Commandments and the law to the people of Israel. In chapter 19, God is specially present with His people at Sinai. If you ever read the story, it's an incredible story. They're at Sinai. God comes down on the mountain in a in a pillar. A thick black smoke fire is going up. Smoke is going up. The earth is shaking. It's quite a tremendous scene. And God it says is specially present there to give them the law. This is a quote from chapter 19 in Exodus, verses four and six. God says, "You yourselves have seen." what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's saying there's something particular about Israel that God will relate to them in a way that He'll relate to nobody else, that He's going to give them the law that He's not given to anybody else. Now Peter picks up on this in First Peter chapter two. He says we are a, a, a nation of priests, a holy nation unto God. I priest on this at Christmas time. He draws it directly from this promise. Because when God relates to a special people, they become different from the world. And we see that leading us into uh, the next section there that God teaches and calls Israel to holy obedience. And he does this through the law. He gives them the law and he says, I expect you to live a certain way. So how is it that God is going to distinguish this special group of people, the Jews, from the rest of the nations? It's going to be through obedience to his law. It's going to be through righteous, holy living. They're going to look a certain way that nobody else in the world looks. Their way of living, their way of living is not going to be like everybody else. So in chapter 24, Moses is up on Temple Mount Sinai receiving that teaching. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, with if you, which if you know your Bible, that's a very symbolic number. Jesus would later spend 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. It's also a calling to mind the flood. But he gives the law, and as the law giver, God intends to make his people visibly Holy. It's like almost putting a t-shirt on you when you go on one of those mission trips and you get a bright shirt and everybody's got the shirt on so you know where your group is. That's kind of how the law is intended to function. That it's, it's gonna identify us, it's gonna identify Israel as God's people because they are obedient. And their obedience will be a distinct reflection of God in the world. That may be an insight into why the law is so sharp in places, why it's so specific. And we'll see some of that Next week when we look at Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But it also gives us an insight into why breaking God's law is such, such an offense against him. We get to the top of page five. In, in Exodus 32, and you can flip there if you want to look at it. In Exodus 32, Moses is coming down the mountain, or he's up on top of Mount Sinai, and he's been gone, like, as I said, for 40 days, and the people are wondering, where has Moses gone? Now, I'm gonna take some liberty and make some assumptions about you. And if it's not true, then just forgive me because there's, there, there are truths about me. And because you're like me and being a human, I'm just assuming they're true about you. So if they're not, I'm sorry. You're excluded. But I like to think about myself that if I had seen God perform the plagues that if I had seen God do the things that he did, if I, had, if I had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and I had looked over there, and there's a wall of water, and I looked over here, there's a wall of water, and then I got out on the other side, and I looked back, and I saw Israel or, or Egypt's army swamped, wiped out because of the ocean. I like to think about myself, I would never doubt God Again. And I make the same assumption about y'all. You like to think, if you had seen all of that, if you'd have been there in person, if you'd have smelled the salt water and you could have touched that water, yeah, that's real water and God moved it, then, then we would think, never again would I doubt God. And without a doubt, that's what the Jews thought. How could they ever doubt God, having seen him done all of that? And oh, by the way, We've been on a journey through the wilderness for three months and there's been nothing to eat or drink But god has provided that too He's given us this stuff called manna from heaven. Anybody know what the word manna means and it's not bread It translates literally what is this? Because it was not a food that was available on earth. It was something that god sent directly from heaven And so I like to think, if I had seen all of that, then I would never again doubt God. And yet, three months into this journey where they had seen all of that, the Jews say, Moses is gone, let's make a calf of gold and worship it. I said, that's what we find. Exodus 32, some incredibly sad irony. That these people had experienced God's power and God's, God's presence in all of those ways and yet in the span of four weeks they decided let's make a hunk of gold and worship it. One pastor said it's like committing adultery on your honeymoon. That they have sinned against God almost immediately. Immediately. And not just sinned against them casually. They've done something. The, it's the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Shall not make for yourself an image. And who is it that makes this image for them? It's Moses' brother. The high priest. Now, if we had somebody that committed that level of sin, who, who was in a leadership position, we would be often quick to say, get him out. I'll forgive you, but you can't be there anymore. And you know what God does with Aaron? After he fashions this golden implement of idolatry, he lets him be the priest. He blesses Aaron's line so that all the high priests would come from Aaron. Look at uh, on page five, that second section said, didn't all of a sudden come to this this, is, this didn't come out of anywhere or out of nowhere. The people had grumbled against God all along the way. They grumbled against him, "God, I am hungry. God, I am thirsty. We had it better back in Egypt. We were slaves, yeah. We were whining back there. Yeah, They were beating us and killing us. Yeah, but we had food. And so they begin to grumble. And they allow those grumblings to take root in their heart. They let their own passions arise without allowing those passions to be corrected by God's word. And it's so often this way, look at this quote, it's so often this way, lesser sins prepare the way for greater sins. We look at it, we tolerate it, and then we consider it. Then we give in to them and we adopt them as our own. And then those sins adopt us as their own. Beware of tolerance of grumbling. Beware of tolerating small sins because small sins become huge sins. And he's right. We enter into our relationship with them, but then they take ownership of us. And yet, God is sovereign. Over this, well, he demonstrates how how much of a, of a of a an offense this is because he sends Moses back down the mountain and Mo, and he says to Moses, "Stand aside while I wipe this people out, and I'll start over. I'll give you a fresh new group of people. We'll just start fresh." And Moses intercedes. He says, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Don't you remember the covenant you made with Abraham? Don't you remember the covenant you made?" And the, the text records in, in chapter 32 that God relented. Now, the point there, and I made a typo uh, on chapter 5, halfway up. I said, God is not teaching God. That's a typo. That should say, Moses is not teaching God. Because that's not what's happening. Moses isn't correcting God in this moment, Moses isn't actually reminding God of something he's forgotten. God is actually testing Moses. Because put yourself in that situation, how would you respond? If if God offered you, he'll just take out all of your enemies, how would you respond? <laughs> if God said to you, all those folks who are standing in your way, all those folks who are frustrating you in our church, I'll just wipe them out and we'll start fresh. How might we respond? I think if we're honest, we might respond like Stan over here, Linda's pointing out. <laughs> Our natural response is to say, yeah, God, that sounds great. Just get rid of all those those folks that are in the way. Get get rid of all my problem people. But what we see Moses doing, this is why later in the Bible it says Moses was the humblest of men. We see Moses remembering himself what God had promised and what God is doing. God works in his hard-hearted people. God doesn't abandon his hard-hearted people. God actually sustains and shepherds and changes his hard-hearted people. And he does that by granting Israel his special presence. You see, he would arrange them. Look, you're gonna put your tents in this big arrangement and right in the middle, there's gonna be this thing called the tabernacle. And that's where I'm gonna dwell. I'm not gonna do that with any other people in the earth. No other people are gonna have the special presence of God but Israel, and it's going to be the central focus of your life. Everything about how you live will be oriented around God. Everything about your life will be reminding you that God is central to everything. And so in the few minutes I have left, I wanna talk about this number three, that God works sovereignly, He works sovereignly to save a special people. But all of this, all of this is for the revealing of God's glory. That God does all that he does for the sake of his own glory. It's a book about the glory of God, it's the central biblical truth of this book. If you want to know what the book of Exodus is about, it's about God's glory. This is something that the movies miss. The Prince of Egypt and, and the Ten Commandments, they've, they more focus on slaves being held under captivity and being freed. And they miss this. They totally miss this aspect, that the central truth of Exodus is about God's glory. The central truth of the Bible is about God's glory. The Bible doesn't make any sense if we don't understand this truth. It challenges, Exodus challenges the more modern idea that God does everything for humanity's sake. Sometimes we like to think God is up in heaven just just waiting to do something for us. And while God does love us and care for us and shepherds us and promises us life through his son Jesus Christ... Humanity is not the central focus of God's creation. It's not the central focus of God's working. We see that not only are we not the central purpose, but God's glory is what is central. God's glory is what he is committed to the most. And we see this all throughout the book of Exodus. The whole book's about establishing his fame. It's about establishing his glory. We see it in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and you can look these up later. In chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he comes to know who I am. We see it in the plagues, chapter 8, verse 10, chapter 9, 10, 11. God says, I am going to do this so that Egypt and Pharaoh will know who God is. We see it in God's raising up of Pharaoh. We see it in the salvation of Israel in the Red Sea in chapters 14 and 15. Why does God do that? Because God is glorifying himself in the salvation of his people and the defeat of the enemies of his people. We see it in Moses' song of salvation. If you have your Bibles open, flip over to chapter 15 of Exodus. Exodus. Moses is singing this great, he's leading the people in this, this great song to God. And in chapter 15, it says, the people have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. God reveals his glory so that his people come to know who he is and so that God's enemies come to fear God. Think about that. Verse 15, it says, because of the greatness of your arm. You know what that means? God slid up his sleeve and just flexed. And it says, and the nations just stood still until the people passed by. Because God is concerned. God is committed to revealing his glory. And so here we have The message of Exodus, that God himself is greater than all gods. There's no other God besides God. There's no other God even on the level of God. And as a matter of fact, there aren't even other gods. That he works sovereignly to save a special group of people so that we would behold his glory. That's what God wants us to come away with when we read the story of Exodus. That we see this great glorious God works sovereignly to save a people. And in saving those people, he gives himself fully to those people. This is what he's doing in the church. This is why Exodus still matters in the church. Because it's the story of what God is doing in our lives. Look at that chart I put there on the bottom of page 6. The salvation of Israel in Exodus was God's greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, but it merely pointed to something that was yet to come. All that God did with the Jews in the Exodus from Egypt was just something pointing forward. God was saying, just wait and see. Because you see there in the left column that Israel was, they were under captivity in Egypt, that through Moses, God leads them in an Exodus from captivity in Egypt into the wilderness where they receive the law, where God dwells with them in a special way in the tabernacle. We see that God leads them through the wilderness, providing for their needs, dealing with their sin, ultimately leading them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where he says to them, if you will obey, this is, I quoted, I think, Deuteronomy 30 last time. God says, I'm setting before you today, life and death, choose life, that it might go well with you in the promised land. Well, think about the church. Exodus is just a picture of what God's gonna do in and through Jesus Christ because whereas we are not captives in Egypt, we are, apart from him, captives in sin. Ephesians chapter two says, we are dead in our trespasses in sin and sins. Slaves to Satan is what Paul says. It's, and, and through Christ, God leads the church in an exodus from captivity in sin into sanctification. We're not led into a physical wilderness, but we're led into sanctification. We are given special insight into his word, special fellowship with his people. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. No longer is the presence of God confined to that innermost room in the tabernacle in the center of the camp. Now God dwells in that very special way inside of every single Christian. So the central point of God being in the center of the camp as as reminding the people that God is the center of everything, God now gives us his Holy Spirit to live with inside of us to remind us continually that he is our God. And then finally, we see that God leads us through the wilderness of sanctification where God deals with our sin, where God is growing us to be more like Christ, where God is is dealing with the hurts and the pains of this world until one day we will come up on the banks of the promised land like our brother Thomas did just this afternoon. And God will see us faithfully into a land flowing eternally with milk and honey. God will provide for our needs just like he provided the Israelites manna from heaven. He will provide for us in unlikely ways like when he told Moses, go over there and hit that rock. And God will faithfully shepherd us even in the midst of our own disobedience. If you've ever tried to obey God for an extended period of time, you know it just doesn't work. You, we, we can't obey God perfectly perfectly. We can and should try. We should walk in faithfulness. We should flee from sin. But just like the Israelites who saw all that God did, we are tempted to turn away so quickly to worship. Maybe not a golden calf, but so many other things that that, that, that beckon us to worship. Money or dreams or goals or anything, worry, anxiety, any of that. Exodus challenges our ideas about God, about salvation, and it challenges us to see that God saves a special people for his own glory. Why does the church exist? The church exists for God's glory, for no other reason. That is what we are to be about as a New Testament local church right here in Roxburgh, North Carolina, the making much of God's glory. So, any questions before I, I pray? Oh, so, just as a reminder, let me give you a quick reminder of where we are on the timeline. God creates, Adam and Eve, flood, and we get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They go into Egypt. They're an Egypt in Egypt for four hundred ish years. God raises up Moses. They lead them on the Exodus. They come to Mount Sinai. That's where we are in the biblical story. All the stuff that we've talked about has already emerged in the Bible. And I don't want to spoil anything, but this is what the rest of the Bible is about. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I said last week in Genesis that we can, we can determine the end from how it starts. And that's what the Bible is about. God working sovereignly to save a special people and what makes them special is that he gives himself to them and in doing so heals their sin and causes them to walk in righteousness and causes them to live distinct from the rest of the world which if you're thinking about all right, how does that apply to me I keep, a quote, I keep a lot of quotes in the front of my Bible uh, I have a whole page I just taped them in there one of them says this. It says, the Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. That God intends to work out the story of Exodus in your life until you die, if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, then God has saved you from your sin and will walk you through the rest of your life until he shepherds you into his presence. And he intends to do that, to glorify himself, to make much of himself and to see to it that you live a distinct, holy, fulfilling life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for a chance to open it and to consider it. Lord, help us to not take these privileges lightly. We have brothers and sisters around the world who aren't able to open the Bible publicly. They aren't able to gather publicly and freely. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you would give them your Holy Spirit in a special way that you would infuse them with a passion to make the gospel known. God, we pray that for us, that you infuse us with a passion to make the gospel known. That's what the book of Exodus is about, making known the glory of the God who saves. So I pray that this, this doesn't pass over us lightly, that this becomes the central truth of who we are. That's our desire, that's our prayer, and we pray it in your holy name, amen. My quirk, yeah.